You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Shauna Edwards and Allison Richmond on the show with me today. They have a brand new book out. It's called Thread Co- The Thread Collectors, and what an amazing story. I can't wait to dig into all this. Um, welcome, Shauna and Allison. Thank you, Hank. Yeah, thank you, Hank. Uh, I'm excited to have you guys. Uh, we begin each show with the same question, and I'll pitch it to Shauna first because on my screen, she's at the top, and we'll just go clockwise. Shauna, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, wow. What a great question. So it may be just a family tale, but my mother says that I learned to read by myself and that she and my father wandered in one day and I was sitting on the couch at around three years old holding the paper and they thought that I was joking, right? I was just mimicking adults but I was actually sounding out words. And I've been fascinated with words from a very young age. And then the idea that someone made them up has always stuck with me, right? I can remember writing stories as a young person. Now, I didn't ever think that I could become a novelist. Um, Probably it was Allison that gave me that dream and that courage, but that love of words and that love of reading has been with me since before I had memory. It's so funny that you... um... You tell it that way because uh, there's something magical that seems to happen. One minute, you know, books are just there. And then you you walk into a library or a bookstore or something one day and you see all these books and you realize that there are people behind those. Mm-hmm. And someone wrote them and then other people helped them edit it and publish it and and then bookstores sell it. And there's there are people behind all of these. And if those people can do this, then so can I. It, Absolutely. You know, that's it, that when you humanize it, 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 it becomes accessible somehow. Isn't that funny? Um, Allison, what about you? What's your first memory? Well, I think my first memory I can trace back to my first grade classroom. Um, I had this amazing teacher, Mrs. Goldberg. And I remember one afternoon she, um, asked us all to take up a, a piece of, you know, remember when you were little in elementary school, it would be this type of paper that had like a space to draw a picture. And then there'd be like five blue lines that you could right. describe something on the bottom. So we took out that piece of paper on our desk and she had in her hand a, a glass pot of bright blue tempera paint and a paintbrush. And she walked around to each of our desks and put a blob of this blue paint in the middle of the space where you could draw a, you know, something. And she told us to fold the paper in half and then open it and then to write what we saw. And I remember I wrote this, you know, five line or, you know, six line short story about a flying pickle that became my friend. And I loved doing it. I mean, I loved imagining what I saw and then trying to recreate it with words. And when I got that assignment back on the top of the paper, Mrs. Goldberg wrote, you have a gift with words, Allison. And I never forgot it. And I think that just ignited my like love of 
telling stories, using my imagination. And if you can believe it, like to this day, sometimes when I'm in front of the computer and I'm trying to start off a chapter, I literally just like close my eyes and imagine what I see is supposed to unfold. And that guides me to start writing what needs to be said. I love that. Um, and we, we definitely can't discount um, the encouragement from someone that we respect. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and it, there's something about a, a parent or a teacher or some, mm-hmm. someone in authority that, that then gives you that encouragement. Hey, you, you're actually really good at this. That really sticks with you. Oh, you never, you never forget it. And and you know, when I published my first novel, I actually got a letter from Mrs. Goldberg. You know, she had moved to Texas, and someone must have like cop, you know, cut something out of a community newspaper that had announced I had written a letter. And she wrote me this beautiful note that said, "I always knew it." And it's just like you know, your parents don't always notice that you have a talent, especially when you're right. six. They're telling you know, my mother was always telling me to keep a cleaner room, but Mrs. Goldberg saw something. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Um, Shauna, was was there anyone in your life who recognized that storytelling gene, um, if you will, that that offered a piece of encouragement? Um, absolutely. So funny enough, and I don't think Allison knows this, uh, growing up in the Deep South, whether we should or not, we put our daughters in beauty pageants. So <laughs> I was a beauty pageant child. It's definitely a Southern culture thing. <laughs> and I think through a lot of different talents, singing, probably not my thing. I do play the harp like Lily in our novel. And so that was something, but I was always told that I should be an actress, right? Because they're like, cause you have the voice and you take the words and you know, you can put them across. And like, I do remember like early acting teachers, um, and even my mother standing on the sidelines saying, this is what you should do. But what I think they never really realized was the thing that was igniting me was I love the story, not so much being up front. In fact, I'm I'm probably a little shyer than most people would ever consider I am. I like the act of like the words and conveying the story, not people looking at me. So definitely there were early people, but I think they thought that I would be more speaking someone else's words, not creating my own. Um, Shauna, do do I understand right that you studied literature at Harvard? I and, did indeed. And then practiced law? Yes, absolutely. Practiced law for 13 years. So what I, I love to ask lawyers this, but what what was it about the law that that drew you to that profession? Well, I actually think that every lawyer is probably an aspiring or a failed novelist. Like if you just ask lawyers like Well, I've got a book somewhere in a drawer. But for me, it was the idea that you could take a thorny problem and you could write or read or speak or negotiate your way out of it. Right. It's just a different way of understanding words and using words and wielding words and arguing about the interpretation of words. So um, I knew that I was not going to be a doctor. I loved being a literature major. The idea that you could just wander around and read all day and then just write down what you thought. I was like, they're going to give me fantastic. Yeah. My parents were a little concerned. They wanted me to be pre-med because they were like, this is actually a lot of money college. Like what do you need to do? And at the time I was reading, um, I was concentrating in 19th century English literature. So imagine me wandering around trying to talk about Thomas Hardy and my mom saying, what are you going to eat? Get older. Um, So law school was kind of natural, but I do think that there are a lot of lawyers who are really avid readers and secret writers. And 
like me, not so secret writers. I There's that it. famous uh, line in, you know, Carlos Stefan, who wrote Shadow of the Wind, he has this line in one of his books that they, says all um, lawyers want to be writers until they compare the paychecks. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> Probably a lot of truth to that. Um, yeah. Allison, this is not your first novel, correct? No, it's my eighth, actually. So I've been doing this for my whole adult life. That's fantastic. Um, what was it that, that drew you to, to fiction writing? The fiction writing. So, you know, I wasn't a literature major um, in college. I went to Wellesley in Massachusetts and I was an art history major. And I, I love to say that, like, you know, my parents were always also concerned about, you know, why I had chosen art history as a major, but I loved it. And what I loved about it was trying to discover the story behind the painting. I mean, when you're a student of art history, you're trying to put that painting into historical context to explore the relationship between an artist and his or her muse. Um, you know, looking for the clues that an artist might have put the symbolism, you know, into their canvas, you know, even looking at what people were wearing at the time, all those little details goes into writing a, you know, a really good analysis of that, of that, of that painting. And so, you know, as I approached my senior year, I really vividly remember this moment where I was sitting under a tree in the way that you can do when you're at college and thinking, what am I going to do if I could do anything in the, in the world, what I'd love to do would be to write stories about artists against different historical backdrops. And um, I really was very motivated to try and pursue that. And so I applied for a grant um, after my senior year, got money to research what became my first novel, and I've been writing ever since. And almost every one of my novels has a character that is either an artist or a creative person. In the case of our, you know, the novel that Sean and I just wrote together, our main character, William, um, and another character, Jacob, these two soldiers, one black, one white and Jewish against the backdrop of the Civil War, both of them are musicians. So, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but that was something we wanted to explore, this language of music and how it um, can connect us. Um, so that was something that is even prevalent in the thread collectors. Well, looking back over your uh, back catalog and um, seeing that you are a, a fan of historical fiction, your um, your art history background definitely seems to inform the kind of work that you do. do you, when you are uh, approaching a new novel project, do you approach it in the same way um, as you, you think of art history, looking for the story behind this piece? Is there usually a, a touch touchstone of some sort that starts a, a story? Well, Hank, these are such great questions. So I really wanted to say how much I appreciate them. Um, <laughs> I think that something that's similar is that, you know, when you're studying a painting and you're trying to find out, you know, what the story is behind that, when you're creating a novel, I often think like you have a, a vague idea of what your characters are going to be about and, you, and what they need to accomplish on the storyline, but you need to infuse them with a heart and a soul in order to make them characters that the, you know, reader is going to root for and have a connection, you know, not something that, you know, not characters that are flat on the page that literally, you know, come to life, you know, bristle with energy. And so I'm always trying to think how to draw that soul from, you know, what's around me or, or different experiences. And Sean and I always have these really in-depth conversations about who are these characters. And, you know, once we develop them, 
they started leading us where they needed to go. You know, like we'd start saying, well, I don't actually think Lily would do that. It seemed more like she would do that or her or her mother, Janie, would do something else. But they they started to, to live and breathe. And I think that's, you know, that's something that I drew from with art history, this sense of trying to look behind the surface and build something that exists that might not be apparent at first to the, you know, the naked eye. Yeah. Before we get into talking about the thread collectors, um, how did the two of you get connected? Just aside from the thread collectors, Shauna, you, <laughs> you, you know, coming from a law background and, uh, you know, coming from New Orleans and Allison being a novelist and, and not coming from New Orleans. Um, how, <laughs> how did the two of you meet and, and what was the, uh, what was the catalyst to, to start working together? Well, you can tell we're smiling because we we absolutely love this story. We met over 10 years ago in the most unlikely of places, um, probably more for Allison than me. We met in Las Vegas. She is as one married, does, <laughs> as one does <laughs> I say, I'm happy that what happened in Vegas this time did not stay in Vegas. Um, she married to a lawyer and she joined at this lawyers networking conference. As you might imagine, I stand out a little bit in a sea of lawyers, as does Allison. And we're at this party. I see her across the room and she's just letting all of these men cut in line in front of her at the bar. And I am a little bit fearless when it comes to, well, frankly, equal access to the bar. So I ran <laughs> Why are you always letting these men cut in front of you in the line. And by the way, I love your dress. And from there, it was fast friendship. We're chatting. And when I said, are you a lawyer? Because you don't seem as if you're a lawyer, but neither do <laughs> That's not a slight. She said, no, I'm a writer. And I just remember being in awe that in front of me, there was someone who actually had, you know, pursued that dream. And so from there, we were always talking about books. And I would invite her to speak to my book club when we'd be reading one of her books and she would graciously come. And it was just a friendship really centered around stories. Um, but as far as working together, we didn't start that formally until 2020, but based off of a fateful conversation we had in 2017. And I'm happy to let Allison take no, it. No, keep on going. It's good. So Somebody's got to tell me about this fateful yeah. conversation. So I had stopped being a lawyer. And so I was living in D.C. I was working at a small consulting firm. And I came up to New York. I reached out to my friends as one does. And Allison and I were having a drink. And she was talking to me about a recent documentary she had seen um, from Rick Burns, Ken Burns' younger brother, about death in the Civil War. Most people that know me casually don't know this, but I'm a little bit of like a military history geek. Like I am the person that stays up and watches like all of the 14 episodes of World War II on American History Channel. And like, who is this for? This is for Shauna on the weekends. <laughs> so when she started talking to me about it, I was like, oh, there's some things that she brought forward in the conversation. I hadn't been aware of some of them that I was, for instance, that 180,000 black men had actually um, fought in the Union Army. But she was really drawn to this particular story and this particular set of facts about the fact that Men died so quickly on the battlefield that they were forced to be buried where they fell. And a lot of times that fell to the black soldiers. They were not provided with an equal experience in the Union Army, to say the least. 
At the same time, sometimes people had gotten really close to their compatriots and they would draw little maps um, to tell their loved ones where they fell, because obviously you have to move on, you have to march on. But this was a war being fought in people's backyards, um, as you know. So she had this idea if what if there was an unexpected friendship between a black soldier and a white soldier on the field, and he somehow, the black soldier, was the one who survived and and had a map and got it back to the white soldier's beloved. And so uh, almost immediately, I said, and I'll, I'll tell you why I came to this idea, well, what if the black soldier gave that map to his beloved and she embroidered something that was similar to kind of keep it and make it more tangible. And that came to mind for me for a lot of different reasons. First is I always want a black character to have a backstory. You know, I don't want them to just be introduced to move the plot along. Um, Secondly, coming from the South and you're from the South, Hank, you know, we've got that tradition of quilting and our grandmas, they don't throw out a dress, right? They're constantly sewing and repurposing and, and all of these things that are really endemic to my culture, it seemed to all of them, uh, um, it, it made sense. And it just felt to me like you couldn't just have a piece of paper and a map and expect it to survive the war. But what about love? And what about love creating something that then brought two loved ones, although one would be deceased, back together? And so we batted around the idea. I probably had a second glass of wine. We absolutely <laughs> thought it was great. but. We didn't write the book at that time. You know, we kept on with it. You know, everything was sort of alive with conversation and possibility. Uh, And I think I left that meeting in 2017 very much inspired by what Shauna had, you know, thought of and and, and had added to the conversation for a possible Civil War book. But I, I wasn't yet ready to write it. And I, you know... I always say with my novels that there's always a feeling in the air when it's the right time to sit down and start, you know, committing yourself to a story. I mean, you, Hank, interview writers all the time and you know, like it can take, you know, sometimes up to a decade to write a novel. For me, it's usually typically between two to three years. And it's such a commitment, such a marathon that I have to feel in my bones, this is the right time to start embarking on this journey of this book. But something didn't quite feel right. So I, switch gears. And, you know, I started writing another book um, that would come out in 2019. And then in in 2020, um, you know, during the throes of the pandemic in, in May 2020, as we all horrifically watched, you know, George Floyd be brutally murdered before our very eyes. And I think the whole world sort of awakened to the fact that America was sort of fraught with all sorts of racialized violence that I know has been happening forever, but it was just, you know, completely, you could not ignore it anymore. I had this feeling of like, this is the time where I want to start writing a book about our own country, you know, 160 years ago and what happened, but also trying to find light within the darkness. Um, And so it was almost like instinct. The first person I called was Shauna and I called and I said to her, you know that book we were talking about in 2017, that those fragments of all those ideas, would you like to actually write that book with me? You know, and then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did not say yes right away. As much as it is a dream to be 
an author because I know Allison so well. I know the amount of rigor she brings to her research. I also know the depth of her soul that she plums. And frankly, Hank, I didn't know if I had enough emotional space at that time um, as a Black woman living in the country at that time, seeing it. And at the time, my day-to-day job was also diversity, equity, and inclusion. I was helping a global organization steer themselves through this crisis. And then to think that after a long day, I would flip off my work computer, open my laptop, and then be mired again in race. I didn't, I didn't know if I could do it um, because I know the way I in, like approach projects. And I certainly know the way Allison approaches her craft. It, it took me speaking with, you know, we talked about people you trust and people you and that encourage you. It took me speaking with a few people, including my now husband and what I was reticent to do, but said, OK, let's try it actually turned out to be I've been calling it like a a, a project of healing. Right. Being able to that. put all of that emotion somewhere actually helped my day to day life. It's very interesting to me that that this project was born in a lot of ways out of the um, the 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 strife that was going on in our country at the time. Um, but this is a story about um, a different time in our country with with strife all its own. I mean, you know, we we all can can look back to to this time, you know, 160 years ago and. God knows there was, you know, strife <laughs> then. But when you're telling a story um, based in in historicity, uh, is it? Uh, how, how can I'm I'm looking for the words to put this? Is is it is it different to tell a story that deals with with these these same conflicts? But couched in a in a in a different place and time, does that make sense at all? To is it easier to tell this about people that that have been through these struggles before and and you know without the present day um, window dressing? So I, I, I say the question absolutely makes sense, and it's a brilliant question. I don't think it's a question of easier because in some ways it's actually quite um challenging and very sad that we 160 years later are dealing with such similar circumstances right but what i do hope is that for the reader it makes it easier to interrogate your own thoughts and your behaviors because you're looking at it at a different time period and rather than feeling directly attacked for instance for your beliefs now, your political beliefs, where you are on our spectrums of how accepting you are, um, you can look at a different time period and learn a lesson for it. But I can't I can't say it's easier. Sure. sure. What, what I think is in was sort of a revelation that when we were writing the book was that, you know, we had four characters. We have William and Jacob, two musicians in the Union Army, one black, one white and Jewish. And then the, also, you know, peripherally around them, we're learning the backstories of their beloveds, Stella in New Orleans who is creating maps out of repurposed cloth and thread for enslaved men who are trying to flee to freedom. And then back home in New York, Jacob's beloved Lily, who is um, crafting uh, quilts that she's sending to the Union cause down south. So 
when you have four characters like that and from, you know, different cultures and religions and, you know, territories and within the United States, you can say it's a big handful. How are you going to sort of create this sort of unity between all these characters? But one of the things that, you know, we learned early on is that every one of those characters felt things that we are feeling today. You know, that for the women, it was trying to find a way to make sure they're, the men that they love come home to safety. Right. You know, for the men, it was trying to find purpose in all this chaos and some way to use their, their talent of music to contribute to the union cause. Um, you know, their themes of trying, you know, of, of when one of the characters get pregnant and, you know, what she does to help sort of preserve that pregnancy and protect something that is growing inside her that she loves. Um, you know, the loss of, of a beloved friend, the grief that, you know, they all feel very profoundly when that loss happens. These are universal things that can happen 160 years ago. They can happen today and they're going to happen 100 years into the future. And I think that's what makes historical fiction, if it's done well, come alive and not seem like it's something from the dusty pages of the past. That if an author is able to recreate a world in which is very sensory rich and that you're able to step into and it feels alive in the pages and those characters feel alive and their emotions feel alive. You know, it's, it's a gift. It's like you're learning in a way that it doesn't feel didactic the way it does in the classroom, that you're walking in the footsteps of these characters. And hopefully at many points in the novel, you're feeling things that they felt that, you, you know, the sense of love, that first kiss, the, the, the sense of grief that is, you know, so profound and devastating, that it makes it make you realize that we're not so different from our, you know, our forefathers. Right. And we're not so different if, you know, when you think of also, I mean, I kind of laugh now because every time people meet Sean and I, one of the first questions is, well, you guys look like, you know, you're from different backgrounds. You seem so different. How did you meet? You could say the same thing about our characters, William and Jacob on the battlefield. How does this black man from, you know, a Gullah Geechee Island, Sapelo Island, end up with Jacob Kling, who's a Jewish man from New York, how do these two men meet? How do they become friends? And then like Sean and I, they make something beautiful with their music. Like we made something hopefully beautiful with our book. I love it. Um, what, one thing that I love about the book is that we have layers of conflict and layers of, of, um, of human struggle. Um, we have the, the large backdrop of the civil war and, and all of the implications that come with that. But then we have the very immediate, um, you know, how do we survive day to day? How, how do we protect this pregnancy? How do, you know, that they're very immediate um, conflicts and very large scale conflicts. Um, when you're planning out a book like this, how do you start breaking down? I mean, be, because I'm assuming when you're talking about historical fiction, um, there are historical facts that you have to work around. You know, it's, it's it, this is different than just fantasy where you create a whole new world. And there's there are all sorts you know, of things that throw wrenches into your, your characters. Like how are we going to get Lily from New York down right. to New Orleans during 1863 when the, you know, the trains have been like blown up and the rails don't work and she has to get there. <laughs> we have to find a, a historically accurate way for that to happen. Yeah. So when when you're planning out a book like this, do you take those big tentpole moments? And and Shauna, like you said, you're a history buff and you you kind of you know the way things were because you've studied it and it's a hobby of yours. Do you start looking for those big 
you know, the, this are, these are tentpole moments. These things did happen. Now, how do we weave our characters in and out of those? Absolutely. And, and in some respects, I would say it sometimes happened in the reverse. When Allison and I were doing research, um, and that's research that we did in archives, research we did sometimes in our family histories to inspire us, we learned surprising things. And those things we wanted to highlight and move to the forefront. And sometimes we moved our character. Can, nope. can you hear me? I, I lost you. There, there you guys are. I'm sorry. Yeah, you fell, you fell down, but we saw each other. Okay, okay. okay. Um, I don't know what happened there, but no, the, the internet just right. hit up. This is technology. We're weaving our way around it as well. That right. sometimes there were big moments in history that we actually moved our characters toward as a way, rather than moving it around. We really wanted to highlight those. Um, for instance, the Battle of Port Hudson, which both Jacob and William, um, they are there at this horrific battle. It was something that even as a native Louisianian, I hadn't known about. I had seen the movie Glory, and I was certainly familiar with the bravery of the soldiers that came out of the Massachusetts Regiment. But I had not known that the Battle of Port Hudson, which took place weeks before, that was actually one of the earlier episodes where Black soldiers were armed and laid down their lives. And I had the good fortune to go to Port Hudson and speak to the ranger and um, I think it was like on New Year's Day, me and my uh, fiance standing out there on a Civil War battlefield. But that's an hour and a half away from where I grew up. And not knowing that, I was like, that's something that I have to bring to the forefront. Because if I don't know about it, it means so many other people don't know about it and should. Right. Um, one, one question that I, I love to ask historical fiction writers, and and I, I think you really touched on it, Shauna, is that um, the farther we get from a historical event, the more it gets reduced to bullet points. Um, because if a student is in school now and we're learning about the 19th century, um, there's been so much time that's passed. You just can't learn everything. We have to pick and choose the highlights, and those are the things we learn about. Um, and there's been a, I mean, historical fiction has always been popular, but there seems to me, um, that there's been a, a a surge in interest over the last decade or decade and a half, especially where we really want to dig into these time periods that that we didn't get to live through. And I mean, it, I think back to to World War II. Now there's there's a huge market for World War World War II historical fiction. And and my theory is that most of that generation that lived in is is now dying off and we're losing those stories. Um, so the the natural inclination is to try to resurrect those stories and to bring those things back to the forefront. Um, it, do you feel that way about historical fiction and and it's a way for us to reconnect to our past and to rediscover the stories around those times and those people? Well, you know, I have prior to the thread collectors, I've written three World War II novels. Um, and I loved doing the research for those books because you were still able to find survivors and, you know, his, you know, whether they were survivors of the Holocaust or soldiers who fought in World War II, people in the resistance, there were still people in, you know, their late 80s who were willing to share their stories with you. And you had, you know, primary research done that way. And there was also this special covenant, I think, that, you know, you create when you're when you're interviewing someone who's willing to share their oral history with you. 
that they know that when they're not here, a part of that history and their experience hasn't died with them. I think that was one of the things that also, you know, not writing a, you know, holding off on a civil war book that made me hesitant to sort of want to also embark on that because I was coming off of having written three um, books where I, I was able to interview people who lived through the time period. Um, one of the things I haven't shared about the thread collectors yet, which is that um, it is part of, you know, the themes that are, you know, or characters in it are connected to my own family history. I have um, on my mother's side, two great, great, great uncles who were immigrants from Germany, he, who came over to the United States in the, you know, the 1850s and who fought um, on opposite sides of the Civil War. Jacob Kling, um, I took the name of my ancestor for the main character in The Thread Collectors. He did enlist in the Union Army as a musician, but his older brother, who had traveled down to Mississippi years earlier to, you know, start a mercantile depot, enlisted in the Mississippi Regiment. Um, and I always heard from my grandmother how we had lost contact after the Civil War with the Southern branch of our family tree, that this moral and philosophical divide had permanently divided the family forever. And it wasn't until my brother started doing some Ancestry.com work that he was able to find, you know, actually the, the papers of my um, Southern relative who ranked in as a as a sergeant and ranked out as a private. So we know he's a really bad soldier <laughs> for the Confederacy, um, but also images of the family homestead in Satarsha, Mississippi, um, which we use for descriptions of the, you know, the brother and, you know, Sam Jacob's brother, which who we named Samuel in the book. Um, and, and I learned that uh, General Grant took possession of the family homestead during the Battle of Vicksburg. So there's a lot of things that like I was able to draw upon that were questions in my own family tree where I had to imagine what happened between these brothers, um, but made me closer to the material. And I think that sort of bloodline between that made it come more alive in a way that, yes, I couldn't interview them. But I, it was also interesting to see how my grandmother, you know, 100 years later, interpreted that family history from her point of view of saying, I mean, she used to say, we know nothing about them, but I think someone told me they're Baptist now, you know, so it's sort of very interesting. <laughs> Well, if they stay in the South long enough, they'll be Baptist before it's over with. Um, the the inclusion of musicians as as main characters in the story is fascinating to me. Um, Shauna, I know that that you said you're a musician. You play the harp. Um, what did what did that aspect of the characters bring out? Uh, what did that lend you as a storyteller to to the story? Um, well, I'm from New Orleans, right? It is a place that is founded on music. And one of the most interesting things about the music in New Orleans is how multicultural it is, how layered, right? It is African music with French music, with Spanish music, and all of that creates some of the best known forms of music in the world. So the idea, I always knew that I wanted a lot of it centered in New Orleans because of the multicultural aspect of the city. But it made so much sense for William to be a musician. As Allison said, she always highlights artists and creative people. But when we were thinking about battles and what William and Jacob could both be doing, music made sense, right? It made sense that William would be a musician who had been um, transported when he was enslaved from the Gullah Geechee Islands to New Orleans. The other thing that was interesting, and we talked a lot about this, is 
we mentioned how many brave African-American men fought in the Union Army, but we needed William to be a little bit special, right? We needed him to have a backstory where people could understand, frankly, like the horror of slavery, that you have someone who is a genius. And rather than being able to explore the full limits of his talent, he is being controlled. He's being cabined. He's being it's it's horrific in a way, maybe more so than it would be if he was unfortunately just a cobbler or just a regular laborer. Right. So that's important as well. Um, for him to have some kind of prodigy level talent. Um, so that's where we were going with that. And I'm glad that it stood out for you. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to touch on just a moment, the logistics of writing together, uh, because you guys are not in the same uh, city together. Uh, and when you started writing this, if if I understood right, this was in the middle of the pandemic. Um, so oh. not only were we dealing with the um, the societal strife in the country, but we all were locked down and and couldn't travel and and all of this and and it has been it was a uh, an interesting time for a lot of people. Uh, some people found it very creatively freeing because I mean we're locked down at home anyway. You might as well do something creative. Other people found it to be very stressful and and even though most writers kind of work by themselves at home alone anyway the the realization that the rest of the world was doing that too that that's could be kind of mentally crippling um how did the logistics of of you know getting this thing off the ground and and you brainstorming together how, how did all that work for you well i think you know actually since um the original 2017 flash of idea um evening Shauna moved back to New York. I'm on Long Island. So there's an hour and a half between us. We're okay. certainly not in the same town or city, but. Um, but still fairly yeah, but close. Still, yeah, but we're, we're close enough. So in May 2020, when I first reached out to ask her if she wanted to write this book with me, you know, we made a date. Ironically, it was on Juneteenth to meet in Bryant Park to discuss whether, you know, our ideas and what we wanted to bring to the novel and what our intention would be and what we were you know, going to consider a real legacy project between us. And it was at that moment that I think we we started brainstorming of like, you know, William was going to come from a Gullah Geechee Island to Sea Island and he was going to have this talent of being a, a, a an incredible flutist. And then his counterpart, Jacob, would have that. And we had all sorts of ideas of, you know, how um, Shauna wanted to bring in New Orleans color and texture and history and the Code Noir into, into writing this book. Um, and then we left and we just, you know, we decided we were going to write the book as a proposal on a Google Doc. And I think Google Docs really ended up working really well for us because we could, I, you know, we would brainstorm the ideas. Usually it was me because I, she, Shauna also has a full-time day job, would take a first pass of trying to recreate what we had discussed and sort of the way an artist creates a gesture drawing, which is almost like an armature of what's going to be filled in later. I would do that on the page. And I would let Shauna know, usually by text being like, okay, it's up in the Google Doc. And she would say, okay, tonight I'm going to start working on it. And then she would fill in. And then there would be notes to me. And then I would get up in the next morning and then I would do it. So it was always this wheel that was being constantly, you know, refined every day and pushed forward. And it kept the level of execution, I think, very high because, I mean, we both had two eyes on the manuscript at each time. Shauna being an attorney has eagle eyes for any sort of missing function. I mean, I don't even know if we needed, we did have a great copy editor, but she, it was in really good shape when it finished. 
Um, even like I'm always very messy with spaces and Sean would be like missing space, you know, <laughs> sort of like this. But it was this constant building on the armature, making it, embroidering it with different details. Um, and it just started building and building. But we always, every Sunday night, had a brainstorming session, which would begin the week of me taking the first pass, passing it on to her, then her passing it on to me. And then, then eventually we had a full manuscript, which we were really happy about. And it became so regular, Hank, to the point where my husband could just tell, I think by the tone of my laugh, he would like open up the study and he'd be like, oh, Allison. And then he'd close. <laughs> right. I think he must have felt like at one point that he was living with both of us. because <laughs> So funny. I've, I've heard of some writers who um, uh, that th each writer will take a certain section of the book and then then they wind up come stitching it together in some right you know, black magic kind of way well, at the end. People but. assume that, like I would write the Jewish characters, she wrote the black characters, but right from the beginning, we wanted to sort of meld ourselves as one beating heart. We wanted one narrative voice in this book and we wanted it to be seamless. And I love that because it's really truly a blending of voices for the, the way the story is told. I mean, obviously every character is distinct with its own, you know, soul and its own layers. And we are drawing from our family roots as we created them. but there was a certain point in the book when we'd been doing it long enough, like by page 150, 150, when Shauna would say, I think that Joseph, you know, um, Jacob should do something here. Is there a Jewish prayer? He could say, what about the Kaddish? You know, like things like that. And I would, you know, I would say something perhaps that I had, you know, read from you know, African-American history. Could that happen here? And we began to be confident enough to suggest from our own backgrounds that the characters might when we might want to sort of layer into the character. So that was really a beautiful moment, I think, when we had that, you know, confidence between us. Absolutely. And we were confident enough to be able to have debates when, as, you know, Allison alluded to before, we thought that someone was steering the situation wrong, even if it wasn't our background. We're like, that doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like it belongs in the book. It doesn't feel like our characters. So overall, I, I can confidently say we both wrote every word as well. <laughs> That's fantastic. I have a friend who um, says that, you know, the, the old debate about plotters and pantsers, you, you know, are you, you write by the seat of your pants or do you plot it out? And, and he says that that he's an onion writer and that he he writes out a passage and then he goes back and he adds layered or, or adds you know texture to it. And and just keeps going back and adding layer upon layer. And it sounds like that's what you guys did. Yes, I think we're onion writers. That's what we are. I love that. <laughs> when we like that term. It's true. I love that. So at the end of this project, um, did what did you guys learn individually from a project like this? So so Shauna, you get to see this story through Allison's eyes. Allison, you get to see the story through Shauna's eyes. And and, um, you know, the ending is something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Um, but how do how do you as individuals, how do you come out differently at the end of this project than when you began? Oh, um, Allison, you go first. <laughs> so, um, you know, so one of the novels that I wrote prior to The Thread Collectors was called The Lost Wife. And it's a it's a book. Um, where I explored the artist's experience against the backdrop of the Holocaust, you know, to explore the question, could an artist's spirit be extinguished in something as dark as, you know, what happened sure. during World War II? When I was writing The Thread Collectors, um, 
I thought before I started, you know, I, I, I have I had a very wonderful education that my parents provided to me. I loved going to school. Um, and I remember reading about slavery during, you know, my, I actually went to boarding school in Connecticut. And I remember reading a passage where they said that slaves were not taught to enslaved people were not taught to read, that they weren't able to marry. But I honestly can tell you that when I read those words, it kind of went right over my head. And I don't think I thought about them ever again until I'm going to get emotional until 2021 when I, or 2020, when I started writing this book with Shauna. And there were moments when our character, Della, could not be with the man that she loved. And there were moments when our character, William, could not take a, a pencil in his hand and write down a letter to the woman that he loved. And there were moments when, you know, <laughs> horrific things happened to our characters. And I was writing those, those sentences and I felt the horror and the emotion and the injustice in a way that I could never have felt as, you know, when I was reading it in a history book. Um, and that transformed me, you know, you know, I, I think having written a book that took place in the Holocaust, I did get, you know, reactions from across the world. I mean, I had, you know, someone in Poland or Macedonia saying to me, my grandmother never talked about what happened when World War II with the Jews. And I feel terrible now when I see history in a different way. And I don't even think when I got those emails or letters, I understood what that meant to not know about something and then to learn it through, in my case, writing about it, but also reading about it. And it becomes sewn into you forever that you never forget. And so I feel that this, no matter what happens with this book, whether it becomes a bestseller and translated into a million you know, different languages, for me, it has transformed me and built greater empathy and understanding and outrage. I mean, all sorts of things, but yeah. And, and writing and reading uh, mm -hmm. are, are acts that, uh, that build empathy like nothing else in the world. It's, it's, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's fascinating how we embody a story just by mm -hmm. living through it that, in that mm -hmm. way. Shauna? Well, it's very difficult to go after that. Allison is, um, <laughs> as always, she expresses things so beautifully. But for me, I realize that as a Black woman, it's really easy to get focused on, for lack of a better term, your own trauma. There were things that I learned about anti-Semitism during the Civil War that I did not know. Um, and it's not as if I'm unfamiliar with the Jewish community. My school in New Orleans actually started out as a Jewish orphanage. So it, it's not something that was alien to me. But I do think that as a black woman, I have gotten very focused on learning about the injustices perpetrated against my people. And this gave me an opportunity to think about that. I mean, there are a lot of things that bring people together. Hopefully they're very good things, but sometimes it's also like a shared history of being discriminated. Right. It wasn't until Allison brought it to my attention that I knew that Jewish soldiers were kicked out of the Union Army. I did not know that at all. She also brought to my attention the etymology of a word that I am positive that I have used, you know, that was a Jewish slur because the Union Army thought that Jewish merchants were they were cheating them. And so when I've been thinking about the Civil War for all of these years that I've been reading things, I have been thinking about it in a very black and white context, right? Like right. what was done to my people, my ancestors, how were they going to overcome it? But to think about it with a different lens just made me realize um, 
history, these historical episodes, they're not a sheet of paper, right? They're not two dimensional or three dimensional. And I need to open myself up to having a broader view. Well said. Uh, the Thread Collectors is available everywhere now. When you're when you're hearing this, uh, you can grab it in hardcover or Kindle edition or audiobook. Um, have you guys had a chance to listen? It's also available the, in paperback as well. So. Okay, okay. <laughs> excellent. Uh, have you guys had a chance to listen to the audiobook? One week's time. We have. Yeah, yeah. we're well, so excited. Robin Miles did a beautiful job, um, and we're really honored to have her bringing our words to life. Love it. I love it. Um, if people are just discovering you, uh, Sean and Allison, is there a place where they can find you online and dig into all the great stuff that you're up to? Uh, absolutely. You can learn more about the book at www.threadcollectors.com. You can find me on Instagram at Shauna J. Edwards, S-H-A-U-N-N-A-J-E-D-W-A-R-D-S. And uh, on Facebook at Shauna J. Edwards. Excellent. And- and I'm at, um, for Instagram, at Allison, A-L-Y-S-O-N, Richmond, R-I-C-H-M-A-N. Um, and also on Facebook, at Allison, same spelling, A-L-Y-S-O-N, R-I-C-H-M-A-N, dash author. Um, and yes, we have a website, www.thethreadcollectors.com. Forgot the book. I know, yep. It doesn't work if you don't put the book. <laughs> See, it takes two to constantly refine. And right. Make- Right. Well, we'll link up all those places in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for folks to find you or they can just click through. Uh, The Thread Collectors available everywhere. Go grab it today. Either use the Amazon links we're going to have or go visit your local bookstore and support local books. Um, Shauna, Allison, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you guys so much for taking time to come on the show today. Thank Thank you. Your questions were wonderful. We so appreciate it.